ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second day of the London Review Bookshop World Literature Weekend. It, it might seem as though it goes without saying, though it certainly should not go without saying, that translation and translators are at the heart of this festival. Um, I think that... You know, we tend to have a rather matter-of-fact view of translation. It's perhaps a little bit analogous to the sort of view that uninformed concertgoers have about so-called accompanists in duo partnerships, failing to remember that actually somebody who's playing the piano part in a Beethoven violin sonata will be facilitating the performance of the more glamorous personalities that they tend to appear on stage with are very personality orientated in the modern book business and translating doesn't seem particularly glamorous but of course at a purely practical level and it's a complete cliche a truism translators are the mediating angels in Babel without them we would have beyond our own knowledge of language which in this country foreign language this country tends to be rather poor we would have very little way of gaining access to other people's languages, cultures, and ways of looking at the world. But I think there is a probably a deeper, uh, well, certainly a deeper, a more profound uh, significance to the, to, the, to the act of translation. And indeed, I don't think it would be too grandiose to say that it is an enactment of what it is to be human. Um, I, I expect all of all of us have had the experience when we first start to learn a foreign language at school uh, of suddenly realizing that actually, no, this language which we're learning is not simply a word-for-word translation of our own language. And I can remember thinking as a very small child, why are all these people bothering to speak in this funny way? Why don't they just speak in English? As a child, you have this omnipotent, culturally omnipotent position that is then split at the moment when you realize this fact, usually through hard labor in the classroom, and Marcel et Denise, and so on. Um, that a little bit later, a much more profound realization may dawn on you, and one hopes that it does, which is the moment when you realize, probably in your teens, that, that not only are languages not exact translations of each other, but that they're not a translation of some supra-platonic language that exists in the sky, that there isn't an ideal language which each language is an exact replica of, you know, in different, in different clothing. That realization is initially dizzying because you then realize that, rather like thinking about 
the nature of the universe, or eternity, there is simply an infinite number of possible meanings. Not only that, but that other people are not just having different words for different experiences, but they are having different experiences. They are actually seeing the world differently from you. And once you've got over the sense of vertigo, when you think about that, you realize that, of course, that is the source of enormous plurality, joy, multiplicity, all the things that make life worth living. And of course, politically speaking, that realization should lead to a fundamental mindset of tolerance for the other. Now yesterday, Hamid Ismailov and Elias Khoury, the events that I, I unfortunately couldn't go to Alan's event earlier on, he may also have been speaking about this, both happened to touch upon notions of multiple identity. They both came from parts of the world where there were many different nationalities trying to live together. Now, that's true, of course, everywhere, as they pointed out. And Eli Elias was particularly um, eloquent about this and was saying, you know, the thing is that the real problem is, is with nationalism is that it posits the notion of a unitary identity, of one identity. And that, that is, is essentially the, the basis of fascism. Because we all of us have many, many different identities. We come from many different places, many different streams of culture flow through us. And once that's dawned on us, there really is no reason not to embrace the realities of other people, much as for all sorts of unfortunate reasons in human nature, one tends still to, 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 to forget that. Now, there is a real sense in which translation enacts that very, very important political and human fact every time that it is um, entered upon. The, this kind of thing is probably often said about translation, and, and, and equally well, there is, there is a great deal of talk about the different approaches to this very complex business of, of, of negotiating sameness and difference. Amongst the translating community particularly, there will be arguments about the degree to which translation should be literal and the degree to which it should be imaginative and free. And that represents a spectrum uh, which, you know, there is no normative or perfect point on that spectrum. There are, there are, it's, a, it's a mobile situation. But when I was at university, there was, I was at a time when structuralism was, was very much the rage, and everybody would talk about structuralism and the structuralist analysis of texts. But after a while, one began to realize that actually nobody was actually doing it. Theoretically speaking, it was all fine, and people argued about this, but you never actually saw much in the way of a practical attempt to apply those principles that became frustrating. And it's a little bit like that with this translation debate. You know, it's great to talk about it. And indeed, everybody may have their arguments over, over dinner about it and so on. And everybody's interested in it because we all love to look at the variants of different translations of a text that we know and perhaps love. But it's quite a scary thing to do to actually bring that out into the open and really say, okay, we're going to do this. Not only do it for ourselves, for a small number of people, as one might do in an academic seminar, but actually in front of the public. And I think that it's extremely exciting and speculative and, I don't know, sort of, there's a general sort of feeling of life enhancement about this that, that 
our four con contributors today have agreed to do this for you. And, uh, and it is all a little bit unknown territory. I'm not sure it's been done before quite in this way. Perhaps it has. Um, but, but at any rate, you must be very... I, I, I ask you to be very um, generous towards them in feeling their way through a conversation that is, in many respects, quite unusually dangerous because it's not pre-scripted. And what has happened here, as, as you probably know, um, that they've taken a short text by Alain Mabanku, who, whose novel Broken Glass uh, was shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, and they have quite independently and without conferring with one another translated it, and those translations have been printed and indeed then filleted in order that you can see where the main variants lie. And they're here to talk about those differences and possibly defend them um, with the uh, moderating help of Daniel Hahn. So we have three of our most distinguished translators here involved in this. And uh, I think it should be a fascinating hour. So at the end of that time, there will be questions. And after that, we hope you will... Uh, repair to the London Review Bookshop, which is at 14 Berry Place. It's just down the road opposite the British Museum, uh, possibly to, to buy books that they may have signed. Thank you very much. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm delighted to see so many people, uh, to see some friendly faces, a few of whom are translators, which is a little bit alarming, though probably more so for Sarah and Frank than for me. My name is Daniel Hahn, as, as Nikki said, and I'm the chair of the Translators Association. Um, and so I spend quite a lot of time talking about translation and talking to translators about translation, um, and indeed sitting on panels talking about translation. And when you hear translators talk, you will hear, you'll hear us describe ourselves as um, tightrope walkers and ventriloquists and forgers. Uh, I think Nikki's phrase was mediating angels. I like that. I like the idea of being a mediating angel. Um, but we are, we are all of those things. We are um, builders of bridges. We are spanners of chasms between cultures. We are, in short, people who find it quite hard to talk about ourselves without resorting to metaphors. <laughs> um, we talk frequently and very abstractly about things like voice and fidelity and register and tone. Um, and so today we're going to try and do the opposite of that. We're going to try and be as concrete as we can. We're going to look at a single piece of text and we're going to be relentlessly kind of word by word about it in some cases. Um, where translation usually is something which we, I think, all try and make as inconspicuous as possible. I mean, part of our job is to make uh, the process as unobtrusive um, as we possibly can so that the reader isn't aware this thing is happening. Today, what we're trying to do is uh, make the translation process visible. I should say that I glanced down at my notes there, and it looks like I've written, make translation process risible. Um, it could, of course, go either way. Um, it may never be taken seriously again. We're going to shoot for making it visible today instead. Um, as Nikki said, Alain's written a story. Sarah and Frank have independently translated it. They've produced, I won't say rival translations, but parallel translations. Uh, they haven't seen each other's translations, at least hadn't until uh, about three minutes ago. And you might have noticed when Nikki was talking, they were both kind of like turning over the exam paper. You know, they suddenly got to see what the other one had done. So this is going to be um, 
well, it's going to be even more frightening for them than it is for the rest of us, which is very pleasing. I should say, um, very much to their credit, when, when Sarah and Frank were asked to, when I sent them an email a few months ago to ask them if they would do this event, they both had exactly the same reaction, which was, that sounds absolutely terrifying. Yes, I'll do it. Very much to their credit. I'm just going to very quickly introduce these three people, and then we will get started. Um, at the far end, Alain Mabancou is a... Uh, a Congolese writer who writes in French, who now lives in uh, Los Angeles, teaching at University of uh, California at LA, um, who's the author of a number of books, including African Psycho, which has been translated into English, and the most recent one that appeared in English is Vercassé, Broken Glass, uh, in an extraordinary, extraordinary translation by Helen Stevenson, which was published last year, uh, and which, as Nikki said, was shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. Um, judging the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize this year was where I came across um, Alain's work and that particular book, and it immediately became clear that he is exactly the kind of person, the kind of writer who is clever, but also playful and funny and all sorts of very good qualities that I thought would make him perfect for an event like this. Our translators, who unusually for, for a, a literary event are the stars of this, um, this hour, Sarah Ardisone is uh, a translator from French who's best known probably for her translations of books for children. Um, she's won the Marsh Award for Children's Literature and Translation not once but twice, most recently for uh, Toby Alone by Timothée de Fombelle, which she won the prize last year. She's translated a lot of books by Daniel Pennac, and her next thing to come out is a book called Chagrin d'Ecole, published as School Blues. It's coming out in September? September? Yeah, September. Um, uh, and I urge you to look out for that book when it comes out. It's one of those things that everybody should read. School Blues by Daniel Pennack, published by Macklehurst Press, translated by Sarah. There's a plug. Um, and to my immediate right is Frank Wynne, who is also a very distinguished and also an award-winning translator from French. He won the prestigious Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in 2005 um, with Winners on the World by Frederick Beigbeder. He's also translated Amadou Kuruma, he's translated Michel Welbeck, um, and this year he published his, uh, a translation of a book by Boilem Sansal. So, um, the only thing I'm going to say about them before I, I start this off is that when we started talking about this event, the first two names of translators I suggested and the first name of a writer <coughs> I suggested were exactly these three people we have here. So I'm delighted that our very favorite first choice of all the people in the world we could have had are the people who are sitting with me. So no pressure at all are the people who are sitting with me on the stage today. So um, I would like to welcome them all. And we're going to begin by asking Alan just to read the whole story right through from the beginning to the end. You have copies in front of you, so, so do follow it. It's great. Sakyambundu n'avait plus mis les pieds dans cette discothèque depuis une année. Toutefois, les souvenirs qu'il en gardait n'étaient pas si désagréables. Il était plutôt satisfait de certains moments qu'il avait passés dans cette boîte de nuit une année plus tôt. À l'époque, il était entré, il était même rentré chez lui accompagné d'une jeune fille. Mais cette histoire ne dura que le temps d'une aventure sans lendemain. Il revint pourtant plusieurs week-ends de suite au cérémonial dans l'espoir de faire d'autres connaissances. Il préférait ne pas trop se rappeler la fois où il se laissa tenter par une veuve sèche, maniaque et nerveuse. C'est elle-même qui avait tenu à le suivre jusqu'à chez lui. 
Elle ne le lâcha pas d'une semaine la soirée entière et sortait ses griffes dès qu'une autre femme convoitait de loin celui qu'elle prenait désormais pour son jeune homme du soir. Sakyambundu ne put rien faire au lit. La femme contractée prétendit que son défunt époux la regardait faire des cochonneries et que cela la gênait. Elle devait au préalable se rendre au cimetière Mongokamba afin de présenter ses excuses, d'expliquer à son défunt de mari qu'elle avait le droit d'avoir une vie après sa disparition et que ce n'est pas parce qu'on était mort qu'on devait en vouloir à tous les vivants. Et alors, jusqu'à l'aube, la veuve passa son temps à parler de son défunt mari à Sakyambundu. Ce type était un ancien chef de garde du chemin de fer Congo-Océan, mort à la suite d'un accident de travail. Sakyambundu eut par la suite droit au récit des funérailles. La veuve, sans omettre un seul détail, expliqua comment l'héritage fut compliqué et comment il fut déshérité du jour au lendemain par ce beau frère qui se ruait sur tous les biens du défunt, y compris les slips sales, les chaussettes trouées, et les brosses à dents aux poils usés. Sakyamboulou sut que le cheminot avait été enterré dans un cercueil en zinc, vêtu de rouge et non de blanc comme la plupart des morts du pays. La soirée de la fête de l'indépendance était pour lui l'occasion de renouer avec la fréquentation du cérémonial. La boîte de nuit serait pleine, il le savait, les jours de fête c'est toujours ainsi, même ceux qui ne sortent pas se mettent sur leur 31. À croire qu'il y a des gens qui n'attendent que ce moment-là. Toute l'année, ils se plaignent d'être fauchés et tout d'un coup, le jour de la fête de l'indépendance, les voilà qui se mettent à dilapider des sommes colossales, à acheter des cassiers entiers de bière primus ou du vin rouge de la Sauvinco. Sakyambundu, lui, se prépara avec minutie. Après son service... Vers 4 heures de l'après-midi, il prit un bus pour se rendre au marché de Tietier chez Abdoulaye Walay, l'un des rares commerçants de la ville qui vendait des costumes à un prix au cas par cas. Cet ouest africain n'était pas né de la dernière pluie. Il affichait sur chaque article le double du prix normal et se laissait de la sorte une bonne marge lors de la négociation. Le client repartait avec l'illusion d'avoir fait une Affaire. Sakyambundu s'apprêtait à acheter une paire de chaussures, un costume bleu en tergal, une chemise blanche et une cravate noire. Abdoulaye Walay lui fit croire que ses habits et ses souliers n'attendaient que lui, qu'il les bazardait juste pour la fête de l'indépendance, que dans la ville, tout le monde allait se retourner à son passage, en particulier les femmes. Sensible à ses propos, les jeunes hommes vint à oublier qu'Abdoulaye Walay n'était qu'un vendeur comme les autres et qui souhaitait au plus vite liquider sa marchandise. Il se moquait comme de l'an 40 que les manches de la veste arrivent à peine au poignet du client ou que le pantalon soit un peu court pour sa grande taille. « Il n'y a pas quand même une taille plus, je veux dire, une plus grande taille, non ?» s'inquiéta Sakyambundu et mailloté dans son costume. « Camarade !» répondit Abdoulaye Walay, qui s'attendait à cette question. « C'est comme ça qu'on porte le tergal. Regarde-moi ça dans le miroir. C'est pas bon, ça On dirait un premier ministre. En plus, tu as un corps pour le costume. Regarde tes épaules. Quelle chance tu as, camarade 
Mais et les manches, en fait, je trouve que la veste est un peu... Quelle manche Quelle veste C'est bon, c'est moi qui te le dis. Vraiment Voilà, les camarades, j'habille le maire, le préfet, les docteurs, tous les fonctionnaires. C'est ça qu'ils portent, ces gens-là. Les manches de la veste sont courtes pour que celles de la chemise dépassent un peu. C'est ça, l'élégance. C'est comme à Paris. Abdoulaye voilà, il plia les vêtements, les rangea dans un sachet comme si l'affaire était entendue. À ce jeu, il gagnait souvent. Il disait un prix, emballait la marchandise avant, de, la, avant la réponse du client. « Je vends à perte, camarade », concluait-il. Sakyambondo paya, sorti du magasin sans grande conviction. Arrivé chez lui, il essayait à plusieurs reprises de tirer la, le tissu de la veste, estimant qu'une chemise ne devait au grand jamais dépasser les manches du costume. Résigné, il s'est dit qu'il n'était pas du tout ridicule puisque le maire, le préfet, les docteurs et les fonctionnaires du pays s'habillent de la sorte. Thank you very much. Um, if you have any curiosity about you at all, you will have discovered that the texts are at the back, uh, split up line by line. Um, both English texts are there from page eight onwards. So you may find it helpful just to have those pages open when we're talking through. Uh, you can have Sarah's and Frank's translations uh, alongside one another. Before we hear the translations, I want to ask Sarah and Frank a more general question, which is when you, you read that story for the first time, you've received that story in your inbox, what is the first thing you do? What's the process? Do you look up things you don't know? Sarah, what, what, what do you do first? Um, in this instance, I had a slightly different experience from the one I'd, I'd normally have, um, partly because it's, it's a text out of context in a way. It sh it, it's sort of short and complete, and I didn't have any other grips on it in relation to books I might be translating, um, and partly because I'm very technically challenged at the moment. Things won't print out. Wi-Fi's not working properly and things. Um, and so I, found this, I managed to get a printout, and um, I was walking into Brixton for a meeting about school blues, and just read it out loud to myself as I was going. It felt as good a place as any as I was sort of going along. And then um, sat down after the meeting and, um, and tried to read back to myself a rough translation of it. So it was, it was very oral. Um, and then the next week, I locked myself out and had to go up to Walthamstow from Brixton at 10 o'clock at night to get the keys off the only other person who had keys at that point. So I thought, okay, um, and I have here, I happen to have my notebook on me and I happen to have that printout, so I did a rough translation. And it's a long time since I've translated just by hand. It would normally be something that involves the computer. And what was interesting was that when I revisited this and did go onto the computer, um, I realized that this text is not semantically difficult. There aren't a load of very difficult words. There aren't massive questions as to the meaning of what's going on. Um, and this handwritten version does what I normally do, which is it's a draft and everything is slash, 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 option, option, option. And I tried very much to translate, not in an unconscious state, but in a very free and fluid state. And then I wear my editor's hat and I start looking at those slashes and those options and how I want to construct the voice of, of the new work that's going to emerge. And what I found with this was that I put lots of options. I really didn't need the, the, the dictionary very much but that it wasn't translated at all. That, in fact, this is, is sort of deceptively difficult because at every step of the way, you're making a choice about the voice. 
Um, and that was really quite striking, and I think it was exaggerated by this thing that I was transferring, you know, what amounts to quite a lot of pages in this book. And that was Brixton to Walthamstow to Brixton. <laughs> and yet that all that had done was do what anyone in a sausage factory could do, was kind of tell you what those words meant, how they flow together. And so it, it highlighted that translating is so much about how you ease your way into the voice and how many tiny decisions at every step of the way have to happen to create the ecosystem that that voice can live in. Having, having heard Sarah say that um, it's not syntactically very complicated and it's not full of uh, words that need to be looked up and that kind of thing, um, I'm just going to give you one piece of information. Those of you who, who read Sarah's, Sarah's uh, piece in The Guardian about this event will, will know this already, but um, something which became clear when I read these two translations first, both Sarah and Frank, I think, assumed, as I had done, that there wasn't going to be an enormous amount of... Uh, there weren't going to be huge discrepancies between the two of them. They were going to be largely the same thing with maybe the occasional um, differentiation. Um, there are, there are 56 sentences in this story. And when Alain read it, uh, you will have heard that some of them are long, some of them are short. There are some kind of you know, snappy dialogues. So they're very varied. What I thought was extraordinary is that of these 56 sentences, there is exactly one sentence for which Sarah and Frank produced the same translation. 55 of them have some kind of variation, some place where, as Sarah said, there are a number of options and you have to make one choice, and they made different choices. The only sentence which these two stories have in common, the two translations have in common, is the line of dialogue where a character says, Really? <laughs> uh, I will also uh, just tell you that I, I translated the whole story on, uh, through Yahoo Babelfish, which is a great you know, comedy game always, um, which came up with the same uh, alternative for that one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> so there, the word really apparently is completely translator-proof, but it's the only one. But so there was a huge amount of discrepancy, um, even though, of course, we're talking about two translations which are um, both very fine and both very as it were, faithful to the spirit. Frank, what about you? What's your? I presume you, you don't have the, the, the Brixton to Walthamstow <laughs> oh, routine. I also, I, I also your, live uh, in Brixton. Um, I have worked long and hard on that, really. Um, <laughs> um, I, the first thing I did, um, I was um, um, working to finish something to deadline, and um, thankfully my editor isn't in this country, let alone in this room, so he didn't know that I took time off to do this at all, but therefore... It felt enormously compressed. What I immediately did uh, was print it out and read it and read it aloud and read it again. Um, I found again that because it's div entirely divorced from what I was working on during the day, and this had to be fitted into whatever else, it was rather difficult to get into it. Um, but I also felt, um, and I don't know whether Sarah felt this, but uh, because I was doing this specifically for this event, in order to present a translation which would have a comparison and which would have an author there. Um, I, I don't think I approached it differently, but certainly the decisions that I made were perhaps slightly more tentative than they normally would. Mm. Certainly it's a lot closer to the literal than I would normally go to print with. But then the way in which I generally work is that having uh, translated something um, when I've finished the translation and made my choices, I will print the whole thing out, uh, read through the whole thing, make my own notes, go back, change it all, and then go to the author, which of course we couldn't do in this case, and say, actually, 
for me to be able to do this, I want the liberty to do X, Y, and Z. I honestly think that, I don't know, rhythm or tone is more important here, and therefore I'd really like to get rid of X, Y, and Z. Um, or I'd really like to phrase it in such a way. And um, I hadn't thought about it until I'd, I'd done it. There was no second possible stage here. I couldn't go to the author and say, do you know, you know what I've done, I stand by, but really... It could be an awful lot more fluid in, um, in English if you're prepared to sacrifice a certain amount of, of, of uh, what it does. Um, so it, it, was, it was rather an odd way of doing it. So um, I didn't read it again um, until I finally delivered on my deadline, which was um, last night. And so I have, um, I have a copy of my translation with my notes on it. Uh, so I just red-penned half of what I'd done. And, um, you know and changed things for things that would end up being more, would end up being much more idiomatic. As, um, as Daniel said, we didn't see each other's work until um, we sat down here, which is why we paid no attention to what was being said <laughs> over there at all. Uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's quite good, actually. That's quite idiomatic. Um, um, as opposed to... But it's, it's, it's a very strange process. I have become used over time, and this is partly because it depends on, on the editors that you work with, um, and it depends on the authors that you work with, but um, there are editors with whom and authors with whom um, I can have a long conversation. Generally, in any translation, um, I will constantly footnote all the way through. I might have two or three thousand footnotes by the end, by the time I come to the end of a translation, which are just reminders to myself of other possible variants of things that could go in there, or things where I've been forced to change something in order to do something else with it. Um, and this this felt sort of incomplete. It's as though I'm, I'm, I'm stuck um, with um, a first draft translation because I'm uh, I couldn't move on to my um, to my author and to demand answers. If, if I can add something on that, I think as well what, what is artificial about this exercise is that it is in isolation. It is like doing it in an exam room. Mm. And by definition, translating is writing with four hands. That, that, that's, that's the first stop. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be more than that. Certainly in my experience, when you do have good editors, um, you hand in this draft that you've got as far as you can go mm. at that moment in time by yourself. With a gap of two weeks, you would have moved on, just mm. as, as Frank had in the period of 10 days. Um, and then when you have that meeting with the editor, you will both have marked up that manuscript. And very often, the final answer you come to on certain tricky niggles will be something that neither of you had by yourself, but mm. that came out of a conversation prompted by your two further suggestions, and you come up with something beyond. So. For me, it is a very collaborative art form as well, in mm. built into the process. No, it's one of, it's one of the terrible things when, um, and I'm sure no editor here present or indeed at this weekend um, falls into that category, but I have on occasion worked with editors who seem to believe that whatever it is I produced is the only possible translation mm. of this book. Um, that somehow I, there were no possible other choices that, that, that I could have made. And what they tend to worry about, and their marked up notes will be, why do we only find out he's blind on page 80? Why don't we know this earlier? I don't know, but I can't really, you know, I mean, I'm not in a position to make him blind any earlier than you want him to be blind. <laughs> um, um, there, those editors who regularly publish translations completely understand um, that there is a cast. I did a translation several years ago um, for uh, a British publisher, and they had asked us, they had asked 
a number of people to do samples. I had done a sample. They had asked me to do the book. And they specifically liked um, the ratiocination uh, and the, the way in which the Latin roots of, of, of uh, the original came through in the translation. I thought, fine, now I have a clear sense of how they want me to proceed. So I translated the book and, broadly speaking, made the choices that uh, we'll go for the Romance languages rather than the Anglo-Saxon, you know. Um, um, I did this, I delivered it, the editor didn't talk to me for six months and then said, I don't like it. Um, it this isn't the book that I, that I thought it was at all. Um, you know, it's, it's very um, Latinous and, you know, there's a lot of ratiocination in it. And I said, okay, give me a week. So I just went back, took what I'd done, replaced all of the Romance words with Anglo-Saxon words, um, quite a lot of expletives, uh, and gave it back and said, you see, that's exactly the book I was looking for in the first place. <laughs> um, part of your, your problem is what you're being pushed towards. And, I mean, one of the things that, that was clear in my mind in coming here, um, and I never had it with the LLB, but I've had it with the TLS, where um, some um, happy reviewer will take a line and say, you know, this quite clearly is not a literal translation of this. No, you're quite right. This is not a literal translation. It doesn't mean I didn't understand the words. I've actually made a choice. Um, but that, is, that can be somewhat problematic, and, and it is part of, part, it comes well, as part and parcel also of translation theory and foreignizing and staying as close to literal as, as possible. Um, I have on occasion been, um, been um, slapped on the wrist for changing the syntax of the author when translating. I honestly don't know of any way of translating that doesn't involve changing mm. the syntax, otherwise you'd end up with a very strange thing. Sorry, Daniel. Um, you may yeah. want to move on from this. <laughs> yes, let's look at the translations. Um, you will be uh, invited to, to comment and ask questions. Uh, I may take a break halfway through and see if anyone has any comments. Uh, so this may, in fact, be uh, even more collaborative a translation process than Sarah, I suspect, had in mind, um, just translating with whatever it is, 250 hands. Um, can I ask each of you, um, Sarah first, then first and then Frank, just to read the first four sentences? See, I already want Frank's now at the end of the first <laughs> sentence. I'm going to ask him about that now. <clears throat> Saki and Bundo hadn't set foot inside the disco for a year. Not that he had such bad memories of it. In fact, He'd rather enjoyed some of his times at the nightclub a year earlier. Back then, he'd even taken a young lady home, but this had amounted to no more than a one-night stand. Zakia Mundo hadn't set foot in the nightclub for a year now. Still, his memories of the place were not altogether unpleasant. He was quite happy about some of the moments he'd spent at the club a year before. Back then, he'd even taken a girl home with her, but the affair was short-lived. It didn't last. Thank you. Uh, in the very first line, what's the difference between a disco and a nightclub? Do you just prefer one word or the other? <laughs> I haven't been to a disco since the 1970s, <laughs> is largely the difference. Discotheque is one of those words where I would almost never use disco for it unless it's a historical novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's damning with loud praise. <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't want to use club, because that comes up later. What yep. do you mean? Mm -hmm. 
Um, discotheque, I mean, the whole tech thing in France is something that we just don't use. We don't have the media tech idea. So the tech had to go. And I quite liked, um, in France, the word is ringard, which is sort of mm. old school. And I quite liked the old school feel. Mm. Let's talk about that, that now, then, which Frank has at the end of his sentence. Um, is that there to clarify the meaning, or is that there just because you needed an extra beat? Well, I wanted the beat, um, but actually it refers to plus. Mm -hmm. in, um, it's clear in the, in the French that he, ha that he has been and has consciously decided not to be there for a year. Um, so I, that's where the now came from. It was, it was um, largely an attempt to be faithful, but actually I prefer the way it flows. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a rhythmic step that you do definitely need at the end. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, w I felt that I was stark, and for some reason I didn't have the now in my head. I could feel that it was bare at the You've beginning. You've done something similar, Sarah, mm. in the third sentence. Yeah. You've added an in fact, which isn't anywhere, but is there presumably because... Again, purely because it sounds right, right? It's a rhythmic thing. Um, again, you've got, in the French, in the second sentence, you've got toutefois, mm -hmm. and, um, which is literally however... Um, and I'd made that sentence, I'd sort of concertinaed it and made it quite stark and short, not that he had such bad memories of it, which is quite slick, but it's verging on an almost Anglo-Saxon sound. Mm. And so I wanted to claw back a bit of a word at the beginning of a sentence as you had to mm. So I sort of borrowed from Peter in sentence two to give to Paul in sentence three. Often a very good, um, often a very good idea, and actually it works better. Than, I, I mean, it, it works better than, um, than mine. I've, I've left the to in, in the previous sentences still. Um, and I think that the reason it works better is that actually it, the toutefois makes much more sense between the his memories weren't all that unpleasant and actually he had, you know, uh, he had memories that, that go beyond the not being unpleasant. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a very nice place to move it to. Sorry, can I ask you, uh, this may be slightly strange, can I ask you to read those first three sentences without the in fact and then with the in fact? Sakyambundo hadn't set foot inside the disco for a year. Not that he had such bad memories of it. He'd rather enjoyed some of his times at the nightclub a year earlier. Version 2. Sakyambundo hadn't set foot inside the disco for a year. Not that he had such bad memories of it. In fact, he'd rather enjoyed some of his times at the nightclub a year earlier. It's much better with in fact. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should take votes. I'm not actually going to make this. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you can vote someone off the programme. Simon to, Cowell sitting at the audience. I just want to go back for, for one second to the nightclub disco thing and, yeah. and, and to um, um, your thing that I was damning with loud praise. Um, um, there are words, um, and you may have this, and I certainly know several editors where I've worked with them on several occasions, where, which I simply cannot... I won't use them... I mean, I, I have an editor who consistently... Um, will go through a translation and replace every time I've used the word little with small. The word little is just yeah. not possible for him. He thinks of it as a child's word. Of course, sometimes it is, but not always. And there are, there are yeah. words... I mean, my, my reaction to disco is not that actually nobody should use the word disco or, or, or that it's inappropriate. Um, it's... You just rather we, not we, use we it have, just We have yeah, personal yeah. relationships to, to words. And yeah. there, are, there are phrases um, um, and very small words or, or very common words that I very rarely use because, no, they, I, I don't... Yeah, they set, they set you on edge. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, I, I had an editor who, I can't remember which way around it was, but whole and entire, and ah, they yes. only let me use one or the other, and the, the rest went out the window. 
I don't know if, if now is a moment briefly to mention, because it kind of fits with the disco theme, slightly. <laughs> but, but the reason this book is here that you probably can't see very properly is that um, Sakyan Bundo is a dandy. And uh, Alain's next book, which um, I'm going to be translated called Black Bazaar, is about the dandies in the... Um, it seems crazy, me explaining this. Do you want to explain no, 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 this, no, no, Alan? No, go ahead. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and very nice to hear. Uh, this is weird. But at the, um, the Congo district of, of, of Brazzaville, and it's an extraordinary phenomenon of people often in extreme poverty who are finding ways of dressing up and looking like the dandies of Savile Row mm. or German Street or Milan or Paris. Um, and the key fabric is terrelene. It's, it's a way to achieve the look of tailoring without having to have lots of men stitching you up all the time. And, um, and uh, by complete coincidence, I found this in Herne Hill um, at the same time as I was reading Black Bazaar um, and suddenly understood what this, this phenomenon of sap. Mm -hmm. So sapé in French is, is to dress up fine. And when I was reading Alain's Black Bazaar, I thought he was kidding me. It says that sap means la société des ambianceurs de personnes élégantes. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, the boy's good at delivering on an acronym. I, you know, it's not, not a bad definition. And then I found this and realized that it, that's the real deal. It really <laughs> is a club for people dressing mm. very elegantly for all mm -hmm. sorts mm. of political and social mm. and reasons that you can read round and round. And anyway, Frank and I did mention this book, and I think mm. you had a sense of this as well. So, disco somewhere for me? Um, yes, indeed. If, in if there is context. a disco anywhere in the world, believe me, it's there. <laughs> um, Terraline, the fabric the West forgot. Um, I, want, I want to scratch line three and, and take, um, or sentence four and take Sarah's, because actually, um, when I say, uh, but the affair was short-lived, it didn't, didn't last. A, I've restated something which I didn't need to do. But also, affair is entirely inappropriate here. It is not an affair. It is clearly a one-night stand. Um, I was... I'm, I'm holding much too closely to, uh, to a literal there, and I don't actually like it. It is straightforwardly a one-night stand. It's, that's not quite what it says, though, is it? It says it's, it's something which is doomed to have no future. Yes, it says that it's doomed to have no... Uh, mm. But une aventure sans lendemain, you can easily translate as a one-night stand. In this case, I mean, had it happened in Paris... Uh, I mean, if the story were taking place in Paris among... Um, sort of young people in Paris, I probably would have translated it as a one-night stand. Mm. It's a one-night stand with une jeune fille. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people sing you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's the difference between taking a young lady home and taking a girl home with him? 
Um, I Presumably like... we, we agree that a young girl does not sound right. No, a young girl always sounds creepy. Sounds this is one of the really great things about French. I've just spent... Give a young girl home with him. I've just spent about... A hundred years translating Claude Lanzmann's memoirs, um, and Claude Lanzmann seems to have spent his entire life with jeunes filles. Nobody <laughs> ever grows old in the land that is Claude Lanzmann, and there are jeunes filles everywhere. And it, you know, you, they are never young girls. Um, I actually rather like uh, the young lady. Mm. It gives it. It gives it that scent. Um, that she makes it at some level, um, because my closest connection with this is, is, is sort of growing up in, in Ireland in, in, in the 70s, referring to people as young ladies. Um, and I think it actually works very well here. Girl is, is, is rather dismissive. We'll come to this again. when Because we, we have the turning of the heads, don't yeah, we? Yeah. And, and I thought that, I think ladies, for me, works yeah, very much absolutely. the turning of the heads. So actually, I've been politically correct and said women. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, girl, it feels to me a man would have thought of girl in this context, mm. and I think it's probably right. Mm. Um, and I think I should have pushed myself into Sakyam Bundo and Alain's head more there. I think lady is definitely the one for later. If I wanted to, yeah. to vary yeah. it, I, m I, might, yeah. I might use girl there. The young lady I wanted to use with a bit of a wink. Oh no, of course, and but, um, I mean, uh, when, um, uh, when we come to it later, uh, to make the lady's heads turn is actually a sentence. Um, if, if they're going to be women, then their heads are not going to turn. Um, yeah. There is there's a, a, a sense in which, actually, by saying <laughs> that, they're, um, and also because um, um, our salesman is quite deliberately attempting to butter him up. But the young lady thing touches as well on what, for me, is so interesting about Alain's tone here, which is that it's got a massive twinkle about it. Mm -hmm. And it's really having a lot of fun with all these characters, whether it's the um, very uptight widow, whether it's Abdullahi Walai, whether it's Sakyan Bundo, you're having a lot of fun with them. And to, you know, you're poking fun at them, but it's very warmly affectionate at the same time. So it's, there's a warmth towards the fact that he thinks of himself as taking home a young lady or a girl. Um, that, and, and I think for me, that was the tussle of, um, the humour, the warmth, and poking fun without ridiculising mm. or going down side by side. Let's jump a couple of sentences. Um, maybe a very long afternoon. Um, we, let's jump a couple of sentences to the line which begins, uh, the, the line about uh, the widow not wanting to let him out of her clutches or not wanting mm. to let him out of her sight. Alain, would you read that sentence for us? Elle ne le lâcha pas d'une semelle la soirée mm. entière. Elle ne le lâcha pas d'une semelle la soirée entière et sortait ses griffes dès qu'une autre femme convoitait de loin celui qu'elle prenait désormais pour son jeune homme du soir. And uh, the two translations, please. Do you want to go first this time, Frank? Um, yeah. Um, she had not let him out of her sight the whole night and got her claws out as soon as some other woman so much as glanced from afar at the young man she had decided was hers for the evening. She wouldn't let him out of her clutches all evening. And whenever another woman so much as eyed up her young man for the night, she was claws to the ready. S uh, Sarah's version is back to front. Mm. Mm -hmm. Why? Um, it, it goes back to the oral thing again. I, um, I read this to my partner. Um, I first of all tr just translated the text to him freestyle. And then I read it um, right at the end when I'd done my work on it. And to my great irritation, he said, sounds good, sounds pretty much like it did the first time. 
Um, but maybe that's something about the storytelling thing that I then had to work up as a craft. And he said, that pretty much worked. There was just one sentence that was really full of subordinates, and I totally lost the plot, and it had something about claws and clutches in it. And that was when I was being faithful to the word order. Mm. And I went back and I suddenly saw that it did jar in the context that I didn't have subordinate clauses sticking around in that kind of way elsewhere in the text. And so I just worked at it and worked at it until I found something that for me didn't feel so bumpy. I think it works very, very well. I mean, I'm, I'm not averse to, to inverting... Um, uh, or transposing clauses um, if it's necessary. It's very in in French. It is perfectly um, acceptable to begin a sentence, so give you the subject, and then give you eight subordinate clauses, and then continue with the verb. Um, you can recreate it in English, um, but it is enormously difficult. Um, well, it is both enormously difficult to do, but it's even more difficult um, to read. Unless sentence structure is crucial to, to what's going on, um, you know, unless you're dealing with Proust and, and every subclause is nested within uh, a variety of others, I will occasionally do it. What I notice about um, this um, sentence is that we neither of us have translated désormais. She had already decided, or she had by now decided. Um, so, I mean, there is a sense that um, not only she wouldn't let him out of her sight, but she got her claws out of so much, um, um, from far that she, uh, not that she had decided the man was hers, but she clearly decided quite early on uh, in the evening. Um, on the other hand, I'm not sure, even recognising that, that it's not there, that I could put it in. Mm. The sentence is, is become slightly ungainly if you do. There are a lot of moving parts to the sentence, aren't yeah. there? What are these cochonneries? Uh, you have mm. different translations for that. And Sarah, in fact, your, your, the version you sent me was annotated with various other possibilities. You I had behaving like an animal, getting down and dirty, getting up to no good, being filthy. <laughs> I, had, I couldn't decide on that one. I like, what, I like what Frank has, the smutty. Well, I wanted smutty because cochonneries is, 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 is rather a, a, a prudish way of saying... Um, things. It's you know. It mm. it is actually what your mother would you accuse you of doing. You know. I hope you're not out there performing cochonnerie with people. Um, <laughs> as my mother once wrote to me uh, in a letter when I was living in Paris, I do hope you're not living a dissipated life. <laughs> um, I rather hoped I would be, but sadly I wasn't. <laughs> um, but no, I, I rather like smutty. Those smutty things is not a th is not a thing. Mm. I mean. Um, um, being smutty would have been better, mm. um, or um, but that slightly Mary Whitehouse prudishness uh, would be nice to be in it. Um, can I jump back two sentences uh, to the first uh, arrival of the widow? The one word which we actually take entirely separate meanings for is sesh, mm. um, which I translate as brusque. Um, you could do it as curt or abrupt. Um, and Sarah, perfectly reasonably, uh, translates as skinny. Um, it can absolutely mean either. Without asking Alain, I would have not. I couldn't possibly know whether he was describing yeah. her temperament or what she looks like. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> when we say "sesh," when I say "sesh" in that short story. I was thinking about uh, 
in our country we have such a girl, uh, very, very skinny and with a lot of problem, you know? Yeah. So uh, usually if you bring us home such a girl, your mother gonna say, what are you doing to me? You seem in this country you have a lot of big women, you're gonna bring a skinny <laughs> girl here. You want me to get in trouble. So says for our country does mean you're gonna get in trouble. In trouble. <laughs> so that girl was in the situation of uh, being very sesh or very skinny. Yeah. That way, I think that uh, uh, maybe skinny uh, would be the, the 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 perfect word. But uh, I don't know if it's mm -hmm. possible to reach mm -hmm. that perfection of. Uh, the Congolese meaning of uh, the, the connotation, yes, yeah. the connotation yeah. because behind uh, uh, that kind of CSRS, there is a background, mm. cultural yeah. background, yeah. in which uh, in Congo they used to consider only um, big women, not uh, skinny women. So mm. we don't have the same uh, uh, degree of uh, beauty. That's one of the reasons though, why skinny is much better than thin, because skinny is. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's slightly. Well, the anxious, fact, neurotic, um, yeah, absolutely. Whereas if she's just thin, then she's very happy to be thin. <laughs> um, they're, doing, um, they're doing these um, smutty or whatever it is things, and she's being watched. What's the difference between being watched by your late husband and being watched by your dead husband? Um, actually, in, in retrospect, I would quite happily say by her late husband, I think it actually works better, and it is a, it is a much more straightforward, literal translation of, of uh, Son Défunt Marie. Um, um, I don't particularly mind, um, uh, mind how I've put it. Mm. Um, late, I mean, th there are times here where I've used a register which I think is higher than, than it needs to be. Actually, with dead husband, I don't, don't think I mm. have, whereas late husband is a register yeah. um, um, thing. Um, and of course, the French can refer, um, Défunt is also a noun in French, um, a the dead man or yeah. a dead person. Um, so I'm not, I'm not terribly unhappy with it. I think that that's why I'd put in that late husband of hers to try and lower the register. Yes, to lower the register rather than her late husband, yeah. yes, which sounds like you're being polite to somebody who's just um, been bereaved. Can we, can we do um, coveted? Because I really did think mm. about using the verb to covet. Mm. Uh, I mean, convoite, um, this thing of uh, her not allowing him out of her clutches, um, and um, getting her claws out um, uh, whenever someone so much as coveted him. I mean, in the end, I just thought, you just can't say covet. You just, you know, whether it's somebody's cow or somebody's wife, it's just not doable anymore. Um, but I actually rather like it, and convoite is straightforwardly biblical in its... Um, yeah. Um, do, I, I rather like Idap. The glance from afar, again, is, is, is rather... It's, it's a bit elevated. It's a bit elevated, and also it's almost sort of romantic novelist kind of thing. Um, Idap is a little too far the other way, but um, I can't think of a third right now. And made a pass isn't right either. No, made a pass, <laughs> yes. Um, no, because they can't get close enough to do that. Otherwise, um, they'd be dead. Lusted after? <laughs> Lusted after, yes. Made doe eyes at. See that the, the <laughs> great battered eyelid. <laughs> battered an eyelid at. Yeah. The problem is, as as Sarah said earlier, what you end up with is a whole load of notes where you've put could use this, could use this, could use this, could use this. Um, 
But the made dough, Isaac, that's really interesting because um, I think that would be wrong mm. um, for the simple fact that those kind of deer probably aren't something that are going to spring no, to mind in no, the Congo. No, indeed not. And, and that just... <laughs> No, but that really touches on something very interesting. The book that Daniel mentioned, um, Toby Alone, that I translated, is set in a tree um, in which the characters who live in it are, um, instead of being 1.7 metres tall, they're 1.7 millimetres. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the ecosystem in this tree. And it was very interesting for me translating that because it meant that all the usual sort of metaphors and idioms I'd use about people herring around and beavering away at their work <laughs> had to go. And it really brought to light how many mm -hmm. of these animal idioms we use all the time without tracking them back to where they've come from and what's going on. And, and that's the case here. So, for example, we'll come later on to the, the, the bit about Abdullah Ouellet. N'était pas né de la dernière pluie which is quite an ordinary phrase. It's, it's an idiom, but it's a common idiom in French for um, he wasn't born yesterday. But there's a lovely sound of it. You know, literally, he wasn't born with the last rain. And then I was thinking, but hold on, because, um, you know, to put that in would be a kind of exoticizing of the African thing. It suddenly sounds like what we might think about Africa wasn't born with the last rain, whereas it's a really quite a banal thing in, in, in the French. And, and sort of round you go... And, and you, yeah, the idiom thing, I guess... Strange. Yes, I think, I think we have to look at the sentence now. And we are very soon going to run out of time, believe it or not. Um, let's jump to that sentence then. Because um, I was going to suggest that we talk about this as, as an example of a kind of idiomatic thing. Um, the French... Again, Alain, would you read... Um, what is it? West African. C'est voilà. Cet West African n'était pas né de la dernière pluie. Oh, that's right. So literally, this West African wasn't born um, with the last rain. Frank, read yours. The West African hadn't come down with the last shower. I think that's fantastic. Now, where did that come from? <laughs> well, this for me is straightforwardly Hiberno English. I mean, my mother would say it. I didn't come down with the last shower. Um, we have. I I said to Danny earlier today. I found. I thought, and I thought, maybe it's just one of those Hiberno-English things that nobody knows about. And I found three people this morning and said, if I said, I didn't come down with the last shower, what would you think that meant? She, no idea. Never heard it before in my life. <laughs> but I was, as I was explaining to, uh, to Danny, it's one of those phrases that we have rather like uh, the way we say it's like herding cats. We say it's like minding mice at a crossing. Um, but from my point of view, therefore, I had it. it was the, I mean, it was the first thing that came it's to me. Great. Yeah, and, I, and I sort of immediately thought of born in the barn. Born, yeah, yeah, born, yeah. And that's completely inappropriate. Yes, <laughs> barns are unlikely. No, otherwise you're... you're um, um, so I love that. Can I have that? Yes, you may, you may have that. Um, <laughs> I'm still picking through yours for things I can move over. Um, but, but there's another interesting one on the idiom front, that Danny, that I thought, is the um, se mettre sur leur 31. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes. Um, and just interestingly... Um, one of the authors I translate is Faiz again, who's a young French Algerian, and she uses that quite a lot. But and, and it's, again, it's a common phrase for glad rags, mm -hmm. which Frank has got brilliantly here. Um, and in the context of Faiz, because her language is, is very hip a lot of the time and very slangy, um, glad rags or Sunday best or all this kind of thing really don't work. Mm -hmm. And so I've translated that in some of her sometimes as crisp garms. 
I'm literally using sort of youth speak yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And here that, that didn't work. Yeah. Um, and I love glad rags. I had, I had finery, but I prefer glad yeah, rags. Yeah, I wanted glad rags, I mean, specifically because I was, though I hadn't seen the book, I, I was familiar with what they looked like, and it, it, it's... Um, it, it, uh, I preferred it. And Symmetrical uh, Section 31, it can be your Sunday best. It can be, um, it can be dressed up to the nines, but dressed but up Sunday to the nines. Sunday best is very culturally... It's, it's Sunday best is culturally, but dressed up to the nines is black tie. I mean, it's not this. Um, whereas, um, I, no, I liked Glad Rags. It was one of those things where I thought, oh, that'll do. How, how do we think of um, even those which do not leave put on their 31 works? Yes, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Um, I'm just going to ask a couple more questions, and then I will invite you to uh, comment, argue, question. Bef before you go on, Daniel, can, I, can I just hold up my hand to something that I completely missed? I was talking to um, uh, a young translator who was up for the French Institute New Talent in Translation. I don't know whether he won it, because they haven't updated their website. Um, but um, um, he emailed me and we ended up in a phone conversation he wants to know how to get into uh, literary translation and after I said don't he still wanted to so um, anyway he, one of the things he said was how does an editor know or how does a publisher know that you've translated it all and he doesn't mean that you've you know not lifted you know four pages out because you were pushed for time but that you haven't done what I have done in this which is that my eye has gone from this line to that line uh, and picked it up, and I have left out an entire clause. Mm. The answer, of course, is nobody does. Um, so for, uh, it's um, the bit that um, the widow didn't skimp on detail. Uh, the bit about being disinherited and the brothers-in-law, uh, there is the phrase that says, who, as she says rather lovely, um, who pounced on the lake man's chattels. I did not translate that clause, not because I didn't like the clause. I actually... You weren't making an interpretative I, I didn't notice, choice. I didn't notice it until Alain read the story, and I thought, oh, my God, I don't remember that clause. <laughs> and it does happen uh, all the time, but generally it gets picked up in the, in the next draft. Generally, when you're going back through it, you will notice it. But, um, no, it, it does occasionally happen. Sorry, you were going to... Hmm. Let's... Um, something and decide which are going to be the best bits to do. Um, let's move on to the next paragraph, the, the paragraph after the uh, coming down with the last shower. Mm. So, so where was the whole, oh, yeah. mm. Mm. Une paire de chaussures. And again, if Alain, you wouldn't mind... Sakyambundu s'apprêtait à acheter une paire de chaussures, un costume bleu en tergale, une chemise blanche et une cravate noire. Je continue mm -hmm. Abdoulaye Wallaye lui fit croire que ses habits et ses souliers n'attendaient que lui, qu'il les bazardait juste pour la fête de l'indépendance, que dans la ville, tout le monde allait se retourner à son passage, en particulier les femmes. Sensible à ses propos, le jeune homme vint à oublier qu'Abdoulaye Walad n'était qu'un vendeur comme les autres et qu'il souhaitait au plus vite liquider sa marchandise. Il se moquait comme de l'an 40 que les manches de la veste arrivent à peine au poignet du client ou que le pantalon soit un peu court pour sa grande taille. Thank you. Um, Sakembodou was working himself up to buy a pair of shoes, mm. Sarah. That's more... Um 
there seems to be more happening in, in your translation than is in the original. Is that fair? Well, what's, what's your feeling about s'apprêter there, Alain? S'apprêter, um, um, I feel it like Sakabinu uh, was getting ready. And is there a debate going on in his head? No, it was really not uh, just in the head. It was something which is uh, very uh, active, if you want to say that. So, Sakyamudu um, Saprete, he was like on the verge, uh, mm -hmm. about to do something. Or and did that? It was a decision. So, uh, he was about to do so it. So, is it is it that moment where he's a. Uh, Oh, in this sense, I think so. Yes. Was, I was seeing yes. it almost like a sprinter in the starting blocks. <laughs> <laughs> no, taking no. a deep breath. Taking the plunge, yeah. I yeah. suppose I was seeing it as. No, he was in the store already. Yeah, mm. yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, he was making his decision to buy, uh, mm. and then appeared that uh, a guy, Abdullah Walai, trying to sell. Uh, uh, by any means necessary, uh, this time. Um, well, I, I wouldn't have certainly have thought of working him, himself up to, but I wasn't happy with planning. Planning is very flat. It's not a, certainly not an incorrect translation of s'apprêter, but it... The, the meaning is, is readying himself. Yes, right? indeed. Um, he's readying himself. Uh, he's preparing himself. But he's not preparing himself to buy it, actually. He is stealing himself. And I did think yeah, of using stealing. Stealing stealing himself to, you know, actually, that it's the confrontation that he's, that he's thinking about. Um, and also, it's something he's presumably saved up for for a Absolutely, long time. and it's has been thinking about it and knows that, you know, there is a life-or-death decision well, or at least a get laid or not get laid decision <laughs> hanging on this. This may be a very picky uh, distinction to draw. Um, Caroline, capital T, not capital T. I blame Microsoft. I totally blame Microsoft. Because it, it is... Excellent, it's Microsoft's fault. Excellent, we can it move is on. absolutely Microsoft's fault. Um, it, it, just as if you ever translate anything that has a jacuzzi in it in Microsoft, mm -hmm. or a Jeep... Um, Yes, it's there, was a, there was a time well. when um, they used to um, insist that you capitalise Gates, because apparently we didn't have any apart from Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so I'm very glad you overrode Microsoft. No, I did, because yeah. I just thought it's, it's, we don't use it as a... As a I mean, it did capitalise it when I put it in, and I, I undid it, because we don't... I know it is branded, but so is nylon. Um, yeah. We had another little idiom in the next paragraph, the, the bit that Alain just read, il se moque comme de l'an 40, which I, it's not a phrase I'd heard before. Um, is there something, I, I presume you both knew this already? Yeah, it yeah. means he didn't give a damn or didn't give a tinkerous Stuff, curse if I was... Stuff Yeah. Um, actually, had, it, had I wanted to be Hiberno-English, I would say tinkerous curse. He didn't give a tinkerous curse. Though, of course... Um, Tinkers, Congo, no, it's just not going to work. Um, but you need something. I mean, I think I just did say didn't give a damn, didn't I? Um, couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. Yeah. Couldn't care less will do. Um, um, but actually, if it was just Samuki, uh, it would still be couldn't care less. Samuki comme de l'an 40 is rather a nice phrase. Mm. Yeah, and that's, a, that's again, it's, it's a real negotiation to have because they are... 
beautiful idioms in Alain's French, mm. and it does flow in a very oral way. And if you translate them all as idioms back into the English, it, it becomes a spot the idiom exercise. It becomes indigestible yeah. um, and, and ersatz, really. Um, and at the same time, you want that feeling in it. You don't want it to have got airbrushed. Mm. Especially in the bits which are coming up, which are dialogue. Mm. Where it has to have yeah, that. Yeah, dialogue, you, yeah. Let, you let all hell loose. Mm -hmm. You can have fun there. Well, let's do that then. Uh, I want to ask about camarade, mm. which, Frank, is one, of, is one of the very few things you didn't translate. No. Um, as a rule, um, as a rule, uh, I don't translate maman, papa, um, or their Spanish equivalents if I'm working from Spanish, things where it is going to be clear what they are. Uh, I did, in fact, um, as Danny knows, uh, originally use it only once in the French here and otherwise translated it as my friend. But it began to sound a bit like Alec Guinness in, you know, in blackface going, you're my friend. Um, <laughs> And actually, I don't see there's any great problem with leaving it as is. Uh, and particularly, the reason that I had to change it back was because when you get to, Walai, um, camarade, I, I didn't want to say, Walai, my friend. Um, but those are the kinds of words where, if I can leave them, if I can comfortably leave them without it feeling jarring. Um, I, I translated an Argentine novel um, last year, which will come out sometime this year. And when I sent the translation to um, the author, whose English is extraordinarily good, he systematically removed every instance of che. Mm. And I systematically put all of them back in again. Um, it is part of the verbal tick of, of, of uh, conversation in, in Argentina. And actually, I, it doesn't matter to me that you don't know... It uh, doesn't mean anything. It means mate, guy, buddy, whatever. But trying to translate it would be meaningless. But no, I, I, I wanted to keep it, which is why I sent you a, a last-minute... Please. But there's Sarah, an, in, an interesting thing there, um, which is that Frank's put Wallai in um, italics, and I haven't. Um, and I was swayed on that one, because I just chaired an event for Beirut 39, which is a collection of Arab world writers. And I'd heard one of the authors in it saying something really interesting um, about the whole issue of italics, and um, that Juno Diaz, the... Um, Dominican. Dominican based in America, writer, now has in his contract that the Spanish will not be put in italics. And that was a real revelation to me. So um, totally kind of irre because irrelevantly. Because it kind of exoticizes it. Because it it's it and because he's not making any apologies for it. And mm. you can get what you can from the context, and it will just flow between mm. the, the Spanish, the Dominican Spanish and the English. And um, so that was very much in my mind. So that explains why the Wallai is... Did, did you contemplate uh, keeping Kamahad? I did. Um, <coughs> I think it works very well as Kamahad. I mean, I think such words don't always work. Uh, had this, I've had this on a couple of occasions. As I said, I will normally keep things like maman and papa. Um, but um, if I'm, you know... I won't keep tío in Spanish because the number of people who are going to know it means uncle isn't going to help. And in fact, um, when I uh, translated William Sansal earlier this year, um, uh, the, uh, one of the characters speaking to his aunt, who is, um, mm -hmm. um, she's Arabic, he's Arabic, 
and he refers to, us, to her as Tata. Well, I'm not about to translate this as auntie, which is so extraordinarily English that it's untrue. So I could leave it as Tata, but actually I went to Bulema and said, do you mind if I call her Amati, which is what he would call her if he were speaking in Arabic. And he said, actually, we don't use that, we use auntie, which sounds almost exactly like auntie in the first place. Um, but particularly in the vocative, I would rather leave those um, as sort of cultural markers. And we had, um, I was talking to um, Kate Griffin yesterday. yesterday. Um, the current translation of L'étranger begins, Maman died today or perhaps yesterday. When I read it in English, it said mother, as though he was a public schoolboy in 1957. Um, but what are you going to, you can't possibly say mummy died today, um, which the Americans would immediately change um, and say mom died. Um, they're really tough words, and sometimes I keep them and sometimes, mm-hmm. I, uh, sometimes you can't. The, the question I'd ask is, if you have Walai Kamarad. Yeah. Just, just um, I think that it was a good idea to keep Kamarad because uh, the short story is occurring uh, during the socialism regime okay. in okay. the Congo. That's what I was so about to ask. So Kamarad would be better than friend. Mm-hmm. Huh? friend comrade, yeah. Friend there is a comrade Africa, like suggestion. My, mm-hmm. Mon frère, it, it doesn't mean anything for us. But Kamarad... You are translating like all the regime, the red regime of that yep. time. So it's uh, very, very close to the situation. That's what I was going to say. Well, like Amrad has a much more political feel to it. Yep. So Indeed. then that's a conversation yep. with Alain, isn't it? Yeah. What about what about Walai then? Walai uh, should have been kept too because it's a kind of uh, exclamation from uh, West African people. So he's a Senegalese. Uh, mm. Uh, men, so Walai, it's uh, like uh, just uh, translating what they used to say first when they are like astonished or happy and so on and so on, or scared sometimes. Mm-hmm. So Eastern, they used to say Walai Bilai, so we should keep it like I think you kept a lot of things. Uh, about uh, Amadou Kuruma's book. Uh, yeah. No? Um, yes. Um, uh, actually, um, Sarah has become closer because she actually has kept it exactly as it is because it's drawn out. She's drawn out the word, um, you know, in the way that you would have four A's in amazing. Um, but um, I didn't because I thought if I do that, it's going to look like that is actually a word. Yeah. Um, so I've ended up shortening it um, to. to uh, I mean, I looked it up and it, it has no. Strict meaning, it is um, an exclamation of surprise, possible disgust or amazement uh, in the Cameroon and Senegal and, and a variety of places. I'm going to ask Alain one question and then I will invite you to uh, speak, so think of things to say, please. Alain, can I just ask you to describe what this experience is like? Um, whether it is uh, revealing or whether it is at all alarming, the idea that your work may be... Um, rendered in to not massively different, but in small details, quite different ways. What, what does this say something slightly peculiar to you about what's happening to your work when it's being translated? Well, I think I'm, uh, I'm happy to see that um, two translators can translate in different ways. It does mean that uh, translate, translation is not... Uh, uh, kind of work you have to translate word after word. You, it's a job, it's a creation. 
I think that uh, translating a book is uh, being a real writer because they, they're making a kind of adaptation instead of mm -hmm. translation. That's very good. And uh, at the same time, I think that uh, it's like a guitar. You know, you have uh, six chords. And, mm -hmm. and we've been playing guitar for uh, centuries and centuries, but you can play a lot of rhythm in the guitar. So I gave them my guitar, and they're playing <laughs> their own rhythm. So as long as it's very good for my ears, I'm very happy for that. Mm. So I don't think that th there is a kind of uh, uh, trahison on mm. the word. Betrayal. Betrayal or something like that. It's close. The, the most important things is, uh, the most important thing is the substance. They mm. have to keep uh, just uh, uh, that little drop, which is my own voice in mm. their own work. That's very good because I can see how the two voices are very different, but very close at the same time. That's one of the things that's very pleasing and I think very revealing about reading these two together is that you see that even within the, the, the bounds of being um, faithful and true to the spirit of this, mm -hmm. it's possible for translators to have quite a lot of room for manoeuvre and indeed I think it's necessary mm -hmm. for translators to have that room in order to be able to create something in a voice which is uh, coherent and, and pleasing. Could you uh, put your hands up if you have something to say or to ask, specific or general? And um, Oh, we have microphones, fantastic. Uh, lady with her hand up, just five seats in. Thank you. Hold it like that. Um, could um, Sakyam Bundu have been psyching himself up to buy a pair of shoes and so on? I quite like that. I'm, I'm, it feels a Thank little, uh, I mean, because... It feels very Western and sort of influenced by psychology mm. and, and so forth, so I'm not sure that I would use it. But um, I, I, absolutely, that is exactly what he's doing. Um, yeah, I like it. Uh, any more? Any questions, comments, general? Yes. Uh. Um, you've talked about working collaboratively, collaboratively with an editor and an author. Just wondering, is it ever possible to have more than one translator, or would it just get completely like a huge mess? Uh, on the same work? Yes, or doing it together. Yeah, I'm currently doing that. And is it a huge mess? <laughs> I'm currently doing it. Um, I think it is a question as to how voiced the work is in the original. I think if a voice is very, very strong in the original, um, it's more of a challenge. Um, and I think that you have to... Um, perhaps at that level develop process that someone does a first draft and someone comes back and you take it from there but it, it's Danny you've been involved in, in two-handed four-handed well you? I've done something slightly different though because it was a, a work of non-fiction which I translated with uh, Amanda Hopkinson who's sitting over there um, but that was a bit different because it was short pieces of non-fiction text which we split and did half each uh, and then we looked over each other's and kind of re-edited I think it's different if it's something which is I mean I, I'm not sure how one would do a sit down and do a novel that people do. I was going to say I've never done it, but actually I have just done it in that um, I've just translated um, Michel Welbeck's letters to uh, Béachel, and Béachel's usual translator has translated his letters. Um, 
Uh, I would have liked this to have been done over a period of time so we could just send each other an email a day um, and, and allow it to develop, but that's not, in the end, how it works. But no, I've never done a collaborative translation, translation like that. I'm not sure that it can't be done. Um, I think that, as Sarah says, it depends on the voice of the novel, and I think I could only really do it if we know who eventually, who eventually do, does the last sort of draft on it. One of my reservations about uh, about the New Penguin translation of, of um, Proust, um, I mean, using multiple translators on a single work is very common in Italy and not uncommon in Germany. Um, basically, if they want the book out next year, then they will happily put... Um, they had two or three translators working on Les Bienveillants, for example. Um, with Proust, it was easy to understand that if Penguin, who had just lost the paperback rights to Proust because Randolph had taken them back, if they wanted the, the thing in print any time in the next 15 years, then six translators was uh, a good option. But um, in the review that I did of it at the time, I took issue with Christopher Prendergast, who was the overall editor, um, for not thereby setting some sort of guideline so that actually the pet name used uh, uh, for Albertine in, by John Sturrock is not the same one as is used in, in La Captive later um, that um, um, uh, James Greaves who translates Allons des jeunes filles en fleurs manages to do the entire book without using the subjunctive um, a whole lot of stylistic things need to be taken into account if there are going to be several people working on what is effectively, I mean, most novels are a single voice. Um, I, th I think that's it. I think that um, what you're flagging up there are housekeeping rules that have to be in place and yeah. someone who ultimately has to conduct that orchestra. Yeah. Um, Danny and I have both taught at the summer school of the British Centre for Literary Translation, and when I came away from that last summer, what was really extraordinary was I'd been working with um, 10 to 12 um, amateur to really quite proficient translators um, on a daily basis and we were working on a Quebecoise writer and every day I was able to type on my laptop and it would come up on the screen and everyone would throw back stuff and we'd, we'd make an absolute raft of decisions about how we wanted to translate specific yep. words and phrases um, and it was extraordinarily brilliant as a process because there's an aspect of translating that's kind of like doing a crossword puzzle and you just don't have all the answers by yourself. There are all sorts of niggles of vocabulary where many heads are better than one. Um, and when I came away from that, I, I missed it madly because I was just having to make all those decisions by myself on my own work. And I think that sometimes a combination of being able to fire off on other people for, for choices about words and ideas about idioms, that's one thing. But as, as, as Frank is saying, ultimately the signature that you're putting on it, that needs to be one, I think, where you've kind of, you've got a mess. Yeah, I mean, it, it can, I, I don't say that it can't be done by an editor, and I can't imagine, um, uh, I can't imagine not working with someone, um, but I don't know, I mean, basically, short of both of us writing test pieces of the same piece exactly like this, working out, you know, where it is that we're going with it. In the end, I think one or other, uh, has to go through the whole thing at the end and make it sound like like a, uh, like a single voice, like a single mm. piece. Um, the baby's got to come out of one person. Well, exactly, the the end, at the end of the day. <laughs> and on that note, with that image in your head, 
Um, I'm sorry, we really do, in fact, have to finish now. Uh, just a couple of uh, things I will say quickly. One is, as Nikki mentioned, uh, Frank, Sarah, and Alain will be at the shop signing things. Uh, and I think, given that they have basically, you know, stood here and taken their clothes off for you, the least you could do is go and read some of their books. And I urge you to do that. If, you, if there's any of their work that you don't know, I would um, urge you to go to the London Review Bookshop and buy some books and read them. Um, I know there were, uh, we, we'd hope to have more time for, for comments and questions and, and discussion. Um, and I'll just make one little suggestion about that. Some of you will have seen that Sarah, uh, I mentioned earlier, wrote something on the Guardian blog about this event. Um, so if you have any thoughts about this event, about their translations, about anything, go on there and, and, and comment on that article, and I will certainly go and um, respond to some things. Uh, I'm just going to finish, if I may, crave your indul indulgence for just another moment. I, I want to finish with a quotation. Um, this is something said by a very distinguished uh, novelist who said, regrettably, I can only write in my own language. It is my translators who render my work universal. The man who said that was the uh, Portuguese Nobel laureate José Saramago, who you probably heard died yesterday, who um, was a great friend to translators and to the, the world of translation, and who was a man who knew what he was talking about. So I thought it was right that we uh, make a little space for him in this conversation and in our thoughts um, at this event. Finally, please join me in thanking our uh, novelist, Alain Mabancou, but especially our heroic combatants, <laughs> Sarah Ardisoni and Frank Wynne. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.